Right, um, great to have you all here tonight. If you are here for the first time, it's really neat to have you with us. My name is Scotty, um, that was Rose who was up here before, and uh, we are kind of the two employed people here at Blueprint, um, employed in the looser sense of the word. Um, and um, yeah, we're stoked to have you here. If you, are, yeah, if you are here for the first time, there are some welcome packs on the back table, I think there's chocolate in them. Um, and uh, some cards on the seats if you want to get involved you can Um, before we kick off I just want to um, flag your attention to a couple of things that are coming up soon Um, first of which um, which is uh, not blueprint um, but um, I need your help with anyway Uh, some of you will know me and Spanky I've worked on a podcast over the last six months we're about to do a new one tomorrow traveling up the North Island and I need to interview a bunch of you this evening after the service. So if you want to talk about the impact of cell phones, social media, what it means to be a New Zealander, contemplative spirituality, anything kind of hipster and entity-like, um, come have a chat to me. I'd love to get some quotes from you on that. Um, but things blueprint. Um, I want to show you a couple of things that are coming up February 11th. So can you chuck up that first slide? This year, uh, Rose and I have been working with Andy Hockey, um, who is like this guru designer. Um, on what is called a seasonal guide. Um, And what we're going to be doing for this year, we're going to trial it for the season of Lent, is we're going to provide everyone a blueprint with a guide uh, for each week of the year, which we have the scripture that is preached on Sunday, we'll have some unpacking from that, we'll have some questions on that, some art, some poetry, and then a series of contemplative questions which you can use every week. And basically we want to put something in your hands to help you on your journey with Jesus this year. And because we are young folks who come to church one out of two or two out of three services, um, this is a great way that you can get a hold of something which will help you to stay really connected, to know what's going on. What we're also going to be doing, um, some people will be using this, I imagine, for like coffee in the morning or whatever. It'd be a great little 10 or 15 minute little thing to look over. Um, But we've approached a few people who may want to set up groups around the city um, around these. So they'll be like quite loose, but what we hoped is to have four or five different moments in the week across different locations, like uni campuses, um, homes, at lunches and dinners, um, where you can get together with some people and talk around some of the ideas in this. Um, yeah, it's a great idea. Um, Andy's idea, he's a bit of a legend, not here tonight though. Um, so just go to that next page. So this is kind of what each uh, week of it looks like. Um, and um, basically what it will, will help you to do is to journey deep with the stuff that we're talking about as a community. I reckon it's going to be a really, really awesome resource. Um, I think what we're going to do, they cost us about 5 or $6 to print. Um, so wherever possible, we'd like people to um, contribute 5 or $6 for their copy. But if you're unwaged, well, that's not possible. We want everyone to have one. And the idea that as a community, we are all going to be rowing the same direction um, on the same stuff. And all of the scriptures within that come from the Anglican lectionary. So this will actually be the same journey that our wider Anglican whanau are going on to. Does that sound cool? Yes, good, alright. The second thing we are going to be doing uh, on the 11th is, um, last year uh, I became a priest, and over the last four or five years we've been on a journey with the Eucharist here at Blueprint. Um, And so we have been doing a lot of chats and a lot of reading and a lot of thought around how it looks for us 
to practice communion in the Eucharist here. So um, I think it's on the 11th, on that same night that we hand those out, we are um, going to roll out a different shape for the Eucharist here. Um, there has been a whole lot of work going to that. Um, and uh, la- late last year we sent away our worship leaders up to Natiao with parts of the prayer book and they've written songs which basically wrap up a bunch of the liturgy so it doesn't all have to be like call and response, but we can sing some of this stuff together, which is going to be great. Um, we are, yeah, have, um, we are, Shang is doing this amazing job at the moment of building the blueprint table slash altar, which is pretty cool. Um, and it's made up of what, like 120 bits of wood or something? 300, okay. <laughs> So I, I like um, fed this idea to Shang that one of the ideas of the Eucharist is that we who are many are one, for we all share the one body and the one blood. And he said, well, wouldn't it be great if we had 300 pieces of wood and they all became one to symbolise that? Um, so um, that's really awesome, really excited about that. And what I'm going to do on the 11th is, is basically preach the Eucharist. So if there's some stuff where you're like, I don't really know what that thing is, Um, I think the really important thing with any sacrament, what they say of a sacrament is that it's an exterior action of an invisible reality within us. So when things become empty rituals is when we don't know what the actions we're doing actually symbolise. So we're going to spend a night getting our head around that and then I'm going to touch on that briefly for a few weeks after at the start of each service. Cool, cool. So, 11th. Be here. Great. Um, cool. Well, uh, tonight I'm going to share to you from. Uh, sh- Sorry, guys, would you be a bit quieter over there? Um, what we're going to do is read tonight from Hebrews 2 14 to 18, um, and it goes like this. Um, if you want to get out your. Oh, actually, it's on the screen. Do you want to flip it up, Rebecca? Yes, here we go. All right. I'll read it to you. Feel free to close your eyes if you want to imagine this. Um, and here it goes. For only uh, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels, he came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. And so from that, what I want to talk about tonight is why God had to be human. Why God had to become human. Because we don't actually think about this much. And most of the other gods uh, that the world believes in kind of have this external power or external agency that they kind of grenade into the midst of humanity and stand at a distance. Yet for some reason... God um, became Christ and came to earth and dwelled among us. And, and we don't, we don't, often, we don't um, think about that too much, I don't think, what that actually means. We take for, for granted the fact that Jesus came and dwelled among us. And so I want to look through the this, this scripture today and look at the three things I think of why Jesus had to become human. And, and it's a little bit theological, but I think what 
This brings to us members an enormous sense of hope when we realise what it meant for Jesus to come and dwell among us. So the first part of that scripture, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Uh, a few years ago, I uh, grew up in a, a motel um, that my parents ran, and there was a little restaurant there. It was my first job was working in this restaurant um, and uh, pouring pints and, um, and, and uh, taking food to rooms and things like that. Um, and uh, one night I finished up, and for a while we had been waiting for my grandfather, who was in a rest time, to pass away. And he'd gradually been, been whittling away. We'd watched as he'd kind of become more emaciated, and thinner, um, and it kind of dragged on and on. He had cancer, and those of you who have had loved ones with cancer know that you know sometimes they'll say two weeks to go, and then it's another year, or six months to go, and then it's two weeks. And so we're we're waiting and waiting, and then one night my dad comes down just as I've closed up the restaurant, and he says it's happened. And we go round, and um, my grandfather is um, yeah is lying in this bed with the sheets tucked up tight around his shoulders. And those of you who have seen a loved one who's died, you know this. people say it's not quite them anymore, eh? Like it kind of just looks like a shell. And, and so I went over to my grandfather and I, I kissed him on the head and I said goodbye. Um, and, um, and one of the things that really struck me about my grandfather, and this, it feels horrible to say and hard to say, but that he was someone who did not die happy with who he was. Um, he was an incredible, incredible man. He achieved so many things. Um, Dale and Jeremy, you know, he won, he won this award called the Bronze Wolf um, in scouting, which apparently had never been awarded to anyone in the Southern Hemisphere ever before. So he won this really prestigious award. He was on the radio every weekend um, talking about college rugby. He wrote books. He did all this amazing stuff. Eventually he became an um, you know, MBE with a Governor-General you know, kind of, it's like a couple of levels below knighthood. Like, this guy achieved so much. But on the day that he died, and right leading up to it, it was never enough. It was never enough. And so a week out, even as he's lying in his hospital bed, and there's, you know, thrush in his mouth, and his bones aren't working, he's saying, bring me this person's phone number, I need to call them about this thing. Or he's saying, bring me this bit of paperwork, I need to do a little more. And all the time, trying again and again and again just to justify that he had done enough to be okay with the time he's had on earth, to the point where he couldn't allow himself to go at the end without achieving more. And it was this kind of sad thing to see. And you know, it's a a dark reality, but a a true one in this world, that in the end, life will take everything from all of us. Life and time will take our health. Life and time will take our friends. Life will take our work, it will take our capability, it will take our looks, it will take our image. Everything we have by the end of our lives will go. It's very Ecclesiastes, eh? It's all meaningless. And, and it seems that there are a couple of different ways that people respond to this. One, they kind of raise their fists at the heavens and say, how dare you, life, that you took this from me and, and feel kind of forever that it, is, it has taken something from them, that life owes them and this, this bitterness wells up within them. Yet some others humbly accept that this is what life is, that this is what life does, that eventually 
it takes all from us. If life is the potter, then some are the clay that rage against the potter's hands. Others become malleable, pliable and compliant to the hands of the potter and they are shaped into a vessel of beauty. Paul talks about this, this picture of this reality of decay and darkness. Romans 8.21, he says, The creation is in bondage to decay. Like, do you guys ever sometimes feel like just everything breaks? You know? Or you finally come out of a flu and then you're like, get athlete's foot or something. You're like, can't this thing work for just one day? Alicia and I have this joke that post 30, everything's creams and pills. Um, But we we are told that creation is in bondage to decay. The other day, uh, Anna and I are trying to get our car fixed. We took it into the shop. They didn't have room for it. It was going to cost us $1,000. We park it across the road. I leave it for two hours and I'm like, oh, $1,000. I come back and someone's rear-ended the car. Just like, are you kidding me? You know that there is just this thing where it's like everything seems to break down eventually. Like you guys have to move out. Yeah, like we have to move out. <laughs> John 10.10. 10. John 10.10. 10. He says, the ruler of this earth at present Satan comes to rob, kill and destroy. We live in this world where things decay, things rust, things break down. And there is one trying to rob, kill and destroy every creative thing and everything of life in the world. And the ultimate and most final expression of this decay, this rust, this falling apart, this unravelling is death. The moment where the last of it is taken. So we see in Genesis 2, 7 that we are told of God that he breathed breath into Adam's nostrils. That God's creativity brings life to this man, brings life to humanity. And the ultimate affront to this life-giving, loving, creative God is to end that breath that has been born into our lungs. And so Jesus comes to defeat this thing of death, to defeat the narrative of decay. And all of that, it talks in this passage in Hebrews 2 about Jesus coming to liberate us from our fear of death. The fear that all life is resisting our flourishing. That there is not enough to go around. That there is not enough love, enough joy, enough success, enough hope. The fear of death that leads us to live always from a posture of defending what we have rather than creating life and breathing new into the new, to rage our fists against life and against the potter and to rage against one another to get what we think we need to survive this fear of death. And so why did God have to become human? Why did God have to become human as he does in Christ? Well, he had to become human in order that he would face death, the ultimate picture of this decaying world, and then show it to be powerless by rising again. Because if death can be defeated, then the status quo lies of the world, that we must fight to survive, that there is not enough to go around, that your survival is a threat to mine, that your success diminishes mine, is shown to be bullshit. If Jesus can overcome death, then all these things, what is it that Paul says? If he has overcome death, then what more is there to do? By dying on the cross and rising again, Christ liberates us into a courageous life of freedom where we can say, as Rose does in The Last Jedi, we don't win by destroying what we hate, but by saving what we love. Great film. (laughs) 
God became human so that he could undo the full stop at the end of a sentence that says life is only pain, tyranny and decay. But better than Star Wars can say it, or, or I can say it, is Paul in Romans 8, 32 to 38. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of the God and is praying for us right now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God became a man. God came in the form of Christ that he would end our fear of death and decay and liberate us into a life of abundant joy, hope and generosity. And he can't do that from the outside, you know? You can't throw a grace grenade from heaven. He had to come, incarnate, and inhabit humanity. Uh, humidity? Humanity. <laughs> inhabit humidity, which you couldn't this time of year. To defeat death and to say that the narrative of death no longer holds true and we need not fear it. God became human to defeat death. Secondly, God came to make peace. With God. Verse 17, uh, Hebrews 2.17, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. You see in there that Jesus is called the high priest. And often we've heard this many times, like maybe the lamb that was slain, these different buzzwords for who Jesus was. But the high priest was this role between the building of Solomon's temple and the exile into Babylon where the temple was dashed was the special role where they would enter into the holy of holies, the most holy part of the temple, and make atonement for the nation of Israel through sacrifices. And the interesting thing about the high priest is they would wear this kind of vest scarf thing around their neck called an ephod. And on the ephod was written all the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was said that the high priest did not belong to himself, but he belonged to the nation. And this that the sins of the nation and his own sins were one, that he was their representative at the altar. When he entered the Holy of Holies and made sacrifice, it was like the entire nation of Israel stood around the altar with him, embodied in him. So the high priest was one who took upon himself the sins of the nation and brought them before God, which kind of is a, a pretty easy parallel there to see between why Jesus is called the great high priest. Jesus, as our high priest, makes a sacrifice for atonement with the Father. But not only that, he goes one further than making a sacrifice and becomes that sacrifice. And in the same way that the high priest belonged to the people, our lives and his life became one and the same. See, we were on the cross also with Christ being crucified. Our sin became his sin, his pure and sinless life 
became ours. This is why in Colossians 3, 3, we have this description of our salvation. And it says this, For you died and now your life is hidden in Christ. As the names of the tribe of Israel were hung around the neck of the great priest who would make sacrifice, our lives are hidden in Christ as he goes to the cross making the sacrifice. And we are made holy as he is holy. This is why it says earlier in Hebrews 2.11, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family family. You see, God became human in order that he might be a high priest who would make one final sacrifice which would forever seal our relationship with God. And so some of you might be going, well, that's actually a lot of like uh, too much Old Testament for a blueprint sermon um, and, uh, and, and, and maybe a little confusing. But what this all means is pretty incredible, I think. What it means is that God is good with us. Like, we are good with God. I see blank looks, but but we are actually good with God. God is not angry. God is not disappointed. Because our great high priest went to the cross, made that sacrifice, and because we were hidden in him, we are good with God. The condemnation we have in our own minds about ourselves, the condemnation we have for ourselves in our heart, God does not share it. He does not share it. We are good with him. More than good. We are great with God. God is good with us. If you walked into a room with Jesus sitting there right now, he would be stoked to see you. Do we actually believe this? I don't know if we actually believe this. I think most of us still believe in a Zeus kind of God who does not incarnate humanity, but who lives far off and who kind of gets off on being withholding with us. God is good with us. I'm going to say that three more times. God is good with us. God is good with us. God is good with us. He is so good with us. Like we are okay. And this might be one of the hardest things we will ever come to grapple with in our faith is to accept that we are good with God. That nothing else needs to be done. And if that sounds overly simple to you, I think you need to sit down and really think about the fact that you are good with God. Did I say it? You're good with God, right? God became human. So are you going to live, Scott? In the house of the Lord, it has many rooms. See, God became humid. God became human, human, that we would know he is not angry, that we are good with him. So two things so far. God became human that he would liberate us from the narrative of death and decay. And God came as Christ so that we would know we are good with him. We are just fine. The third reason that God comes and as a human in Christ, is to be Christ among us. Verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. See, there are a number of things about our God which are so different from any other God that anyone believes in in the world. And one of those is that our God is all-powerful like the other gods, but our God is the only God who makes himself all-vulnerable. Our God is all-powerful, but he is the only one who makes himself 
all vulnerable who comes to earth in swaddling cloths in a stable full of shit and sheep and becomes all vulnerable at the hands of humanity, all vulnerable to the point of death on a cross. We follow a God who holds the universe in his hands, yet chose to restrict himself to the limitation of humanity, becoming fully human and fully divine at the same time. See, other religions have prophets who came from God, but none of them have God coming to us. That's pretty cool. Unlike other beliefs which ask us to strive to reach upward to the divinity of God, our God reaches down and touches humanity. That's pretty cool. That's pretty different. That's a pretty good promise to offer someone. You are good with God and God is coming to you. You don't need to go to him. Even to the point we are told in Hebrews 2.18 that God himself made himself so vulnerable in Christ that he was even vulnerable to temptation. Isn't that crazy? God made himself so vulnerable that Jesus could be tempted to disobey the Father. That's a weird thing for one of the three persons of God to do. And so God, it says in this verse in 2.18, God is able to help us in our temptation because he has been one of us. God became human in order that he would live our human experience with us and help us to overcome. And this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Hebrews 4.15, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. We have a God who is able to empathize. That's cool. Our all-powerful God can empathize with us. And the temptation, the most well-known temptation of Christ that we see is this Matthew 4, 1 to 11, where we hear that he fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights, and we were told at the end of it that apparently he was hungry. Says that. Um, He was hungry. And the devil comes to him and offers him bread, and he says, no, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so he has another go at him, And he he takes him up to the highest point of the temple and he challenges him to jump down so that the angels would rescue him as a display of power. And Jesus says, no, it says not to test the Lord your God. And so the devil took him up to a mountain and promised him the whole world so that he would have glory and power. And he says to him, no, all the glory and all the power belongs to God. Henri Nguyen breaks these three temptations down for us. He says they are the temptation to believe I am what I have. I am my stuff. I am my clothes. I am my food. I am my home. I am my car. I am my looks. I am my body image. He says they are the temptation to believe I am what I do. I am my job. I am my capability. I am my intelligence. I am my talent. I am my politics. And finally, the temptation to believe I am what others say about me. I am my Facebook profile. I am my Instagram followers. I am my reputation. I am my book, 21 Elephants, which you can buy for $25. (laughs) (laughs) That we would hinge our identity on these simple things of what others say about us, about what we have, and about what we do. 
See, God became human in order that he may be Christ Emmanuel, God among us. And that in our vain pursuits for breed, divinity and power, he would stand beside us having overcome these things and helping us to overcome them too. So these three things, which I think are just incredibly hopeful for us, like this is hopeful stuff, like this should make even Blueprint a little bit joyful. Number one, God became human to say that death and decay don't have the final say. God became human to say that death and decay don't have the final say. That we can be hopeful that the narrative of death has been defeated by Jesus. And that our lives don't need to be a story of everything breaking down, of everything rusting away, of everything falling apart. But can be lives that are reconciled and redeemed. Jesus came to defeat the narrative of death and decay. That's huge. Secondly, God became human to put us at peace with God, to say that whatever condemnation you have in your mind or you have in your heart towards yourself, God does not share it. God is good with you. God is good with you. God is good with you. He is totally good with you. If there's one thing for tonight... That's it. And number three, he became human so that he would be with us. To say that whatever our addictions and our temptations may look like, he has been vulnerable and tested to the all-powerful God, became the all-vulnerable Christ. He knows what it's like to be human, not humid. (laughs) And he is with us. These three things are huge. If you want to share the gospel with someone, these are some good places to start, right? And so what I want to ask us to do tonight, which is probably an unusual thing for Blueprint, is I wonder if we have forgotten some of these promises. I wonder if we have forgotten what it meant for God not to be the far off one lobbing grace grenades, but the one who came down and inhabited humanity and that brought us all of this. And what we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to spend some time in silence in a moment, but I want to do something abnormal here. I want to invite you to recommit your life before Christ, to claim what it is that he has won for us by coming here to earth, by becoming human. I want us to kneel before him to commit that, yes, Lord, we believe that you broke the narrative of death. We believe that you made peace and that God is good with us. We believe that you are with us, whatever we go through. And if that sounds naive, maybe it's a great time to do it. How about we close our eyes a second?